This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeedTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NeedTech. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Vanessa Raba, and I'm an assistant professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. For those of you not yet familiar with us here at NeTech, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the U.S., with the goal of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NeTech works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, we're going to discuss loss of virus infections. In particular, we're going to highlight a recent resource that was put out by NeTech called Loss of Virus Infections, a Summary for Clinicians. This is available free of charge from the International Journal of Infectious Diseases online, and we'll have the link to the article in today's show notes. So this is a manuscript that several of us here at NeTech had worked on, myself included, And with me today, I have two guests who are also my co-authors to tell you a a little bit about loss of virus infections and why they're important. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Jared Evans, who is a virologist and infectious disease expert at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and Dr. Anish Mehta, who is a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory School of Medicine and one of our fearless NETEC principal investigators. Welcome to the show, Jared and Anish. So, Nish, why is it important for people to know about loss of virus and loss of fever? I think loss of virus and loss of fever are sometimes neglected or forgotten about, but are really important and impactful for human health, both in West Africa and around the world. Loss of fever is endemic in parts of West Africa where we do see some peaks of infection particularly in the dry season of West Africa, which are December through April. But we can see cases throughout the year. And we have importantly seen cases that have been transmitted through travel and other contact outside of the endemic areas of West Africa. And as you know, we worked on together a case of a healthcare worker who was doing missionary work in West Africa and unfortunately got exposed and became ill with Lhasa and we had to take care of him. We learned a lot from that care. And again, it's another reminder of infectious disease and human health is a global issue. And so any infection in one part of the world can affect all of us in every part of the world. And this one is actually surprisingly common in West Africa. We don't have great estimates on it because it's just an understudied disease, maybe up to half a million or more than half a million infections per year. And it's a virus that most people don't learn anything about in medical school. But with today's international travel, I think we've seen lots of incidences, including with loss of fever, of this coming to other countries recently. It's really important to know about some of these diseases so they don't get missed. So let's take a step back. Jared, as a resident virologist, can you tell us what loss of virus is and how people get exposed to it? Loss of virus, it's in envelope-segmented RNA virus, and this is common for uh, a lot of pathogen viruses. It's a member of uh, an arena virus family, and this is a broad family of viruses that have both Old World in Africa and Central Africa, and the New World viruses are primarily in South America. There's a number of these viruses, and uh, there's different lineages, which is very interesting, which means there are different genetic types that are circulating at the same time and in different locations across West Africa. 
it's very interesting because this genetic variation can impact the outcome of the disease or infection and also can impact diagnostics. And so you might miss an infection because there's something that the diagnostic is specific for one genetic type and not find another one. But to kind of circle back on that, the main way of infection is through exposure to rodents, primarily rodent excretions such as urine and, and feces. But there is been shown to be human to human transmission, which is problematic, especially as you said, with the global travel that we see nowadays. And adding to that is this virus has a variable incubation time. So it can incubate for two to 21 days. And so if you can imagine how far someone can travel in 21 days and how many contacts they can have, that can be a major problem if human to human transmission becomes more prevalent. It's especially problematic if as a healthcare worker, you don't know what to look for or you don't have this on your radar because you never learned about it. And well, in West Africa, it's a little bit different in that a lot of the homes are still built without having concrete slabs or still using mud or wood materials. And so there are a lot of these mouse infections that happen. And the main ones that actually happen in West Africa are with the mouse that carries loss of virus called Mastomys natalensis. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this mouse. It's actually a really cute looking mouse, but they are everywhere and they will burrow into walls. They will burrow into the ground and they will live in the ceiling. So even in people's homes, you'll see these tunnels that are going down into different areas where the mice are living and then they just can come out. And especially if they're walking over everything you use to cook with or if it's just really dusty and you have a lot of dust going on with these mice that are peeing and pooping in close proximity to where you're living. You really don't necessarily have to see the mouse or have direct contact to get infected with related viruses. And so I think that's a really important thing to think about for West Africa. But as you mentioned, from a healthcare worker standpoint, because it can be transmitted from person to person, it's really important for people to have this on their radar so that they don't get sick. Yeah, and to, to add to that, the, the mice, yeah, they are cute. But the other interesting thing about them is they have multiple uh, litters a year. And so they're, they're very reproductive that can assist with the spread when you have, you know, if you see one mouse, there's probably a dozen or more around. So you have more exposure potential there too. So that's a really good point. They're far cuter than the rats that we find in New York city, but I think the rats in New York city might be a little bit less deadly. So Anish, I'm going to turn this back over to you again of what happens if you get exposed to this virus, do you get sick? What happens if you do get sick? Yeah, it's a great question and, and what we talk to clinicians about all the time. So loss of fever can really have a pretty broad spectrum of clinical symptoms and syndromes. You can be anywhere from having an asymptomatic or very minimal symptoms where people don't ever know they had loss of fever and it goes undetected. And on the other extreme end, you have the severe manifestation uh, viral hemorrhagic fever that can sometimes be fatal. It's also really interesting, as you know, Vanessa, early on in someone's loss of fever presentation, they can just have pretty mild variable symptoms, flu-like symptoms or viral-like symptoms that look like other infectious disease. And those infections actually sometimes are more common in their area. And so the loss of doesn't get thought of. So things like malaria or rickettsial diseases or even typhoid fever have a lot of overlap early on in how they look to how loss of fever looks. And then also, like I mentioned before, 
influenza and other more common viral syndromes that we see around the world have a lot of overlap early on in symptoms with loss of fever. And that makes it sometimes difficult for clinicians to look for Lhasa. It's not until later on when the patients become more sick that people think about doing testing. And as some of the patients, if they go on to progress, they can have symptoms that will include severe abdominal pains, lack of appetite, bone or joint aches, sometimes go on to have back pain or chest pain. Some of the other symptoms that we do sometimes see with loss of fever is sort of a swelling and irritation of the parts of the eyes or conjunctivitis. Sometimes patients go on to have a pretty significant diarrhea, as well as other symptoms, including swelling of the face, obviously fevers. And we have seen in some patients pharyngitis, which makes people really think about respiratory viruses or other respiratory infections like strep and not think about Lhasa. And again, it is interesting that this pharyngitis, the swelling of the throat, can sometimes be a very distinctive feature of Lhasa fever. And hearing from clinicians in West Africa, it does help them differentiate sometimes Lhasa from the things that I mentioned before, like rickettsial diseases or malaria. So that is something to look for. And again, as it becomes more severe, we get into this viral hemorrhagic state, or I should say it's possible doesn't often get there. But these patients do often, even without having viral hemorrhagic fever, have neurological issues that go along with it, such as sort of delirium or sleepiness. They can have seizures. And one of the really common things that we see in the more severe cases is uh, hearing loss. And it's something that we often have to look for even after the patient has recovered. Yeah, some pretty significant consequences. But Early on, as you mentioned, it's so hard because this could look like strep throat. It could look like COVID-19. You could have fevers, muscle aches, headaches, just not feel well. You mentioned sometimes a cough, sometimes some diarrhea. And there are just so many things that are much more common, even in West Africa, that can cause these, that this is often not on the radar. And these more severe symptoms usually don't come about until usually the second week of illness if people are going to get really sick with this, which makes it hard. And I think another thing to, to be aware of is that it can be really tricky, especially in like pediatric patients who are traveling, because as we all know, school-age kids just get sick all the time. And this can look exactly like everything else that they're bringing home from school. But you still carry those, those risks of things getting worse and progressing to the point where you're having these bleeding difficulties and having challenges supporting your blood pressure. And also pregnant women tend to be much more prone to developing severe disease and really high mortality, especially at the end of pregnancy. So populations to have it a little bit more on your radar when you're thinking about who's at risk and has traveled to this area or has some risk factors for exposure, who's coming in with these nonspecific symptoms. And Jared, can you tell us a little bit about why we get this diversity? What is it that this virus does and causes that lets it produce all these different types of symptoms? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. One of the things that is really apparent with this virus is that it is broadly distributed throughout the body. It can infect almost every major organ system. It can infect immune cells, immune glands, the submandibular glands that's been found in there, lymphoid tissue. It's found in areas that are supposed to be designed to get rid of it, but also it can be found in the heart, the lungs, almost every major organ system. 
And so when it can do that, when the virus is able to get into those cells and replicate, it's able to manifest in different ways. And so as Anish mentioned, it, it could feel like there might be a respiratory effect to it. And that's because perhaps the entry route is inhalation of this, you know, dried excreta from these mice. And that is one of the ways that can enter your body. And so it could start in the lungs, but then distribute through your whole, your whole body. And even, you know, has been found in bone marrow in some cases. The, the reason it's able to do this is because it's able to bind to a pretty prevalent protein on the outside of the cell as a receptor and get in. And the way that it replicates is pretty generic. It's an interesting thing, but it doesn't need a very specific set of host cell factors to replicate itself. And also with the fact that it's able to infect circulating cells that are going through your body, it's able to jump off and get into other tissues. So it has a, a broad distribution. And, you know, again, this makes that diagnosis, as you said, very difficult because you might miss where the virus is by taking a specific type of sample, or you might think this person has a particular complaint and that doesn't match with maybe what you're thinking. It matches with flu or, or malaria or something like that. So it's kind of a jack of all trades and able to, to move around the body. And this one, it sounds like can also be pretty sneaky in that we don't have any pre-existing immunity to it and we don't really get infected with related viruses. And it just has these mechanisms in it to try to escape our immune system, just like a lot of these RNA viruses do, so that that does not get recognized. And that, again, can become problematic, as you mentioned, with the diagnostic testing. So early on, when you have symptoms in that first week, oftentimes looking for the virus itself, either by looking for genetic material or actually looking at the antigens on the virus, so like the glycoprotein or the nucleoprotein, are usually pretty effective at that stage. But as you get further on out in infection, you get less virus around, and that's the point in which you want to start looking more for the immune responses, so looking at things like antibodies. But there is a lot of variability of when those can develop. And so for some people, you might not find antibodies until the second week or later. And in some people, you might find them in the first week. And in some people, the virus might go away much more quickly. And so oftentimes using these combinations of looking for the virus and looking for an immune response are probably the safest ways to make sure that you're going to detect the virus. But as you mentioned, one of the things that we use a lot for genetic testing is looking for genetic material, that RNA material, but that there's so much difference between some of these viruses, even like a quarter of the genetic material might be different from one loss of strain to another. So if you're targeting one of those sections that is changing a lot, you might still have some negative tests with that, which is one of those reasons to kind of be on the lookout for it and to make sure that if you are looking to test for this, that you talk with somebody who is really an expert like the CDC or your public health department about what is the right test to do so that you don't get one that is negative and say it's not Lhasa when it actually is. Vanessa, that's a really good point about the first week versus the second week. Because in the second week, you can see also see thrombocytopenia and lymphopenia. The cells that are supposed to be protecting you, this virus is actively getting rid of in the second week. And that might be a, a host response, but it might actually be the virus because it can infect monocyte cells. So it's getting in the way of multiple levels of an immune response. And that can also confound a lot of things as, as you're trying to diagnose or treat this individual. And if you're getting to that point that you have somebody from West Africa with these severe symptoms, you also want to keep these other diseases like Ebola and Marburg virus on the radar because those also circulate in the same area. 
So again, if you have any suspicion at that point, it's a good time to reach out to the CDC or your local public health department to say, what do I need to send? Because if you're sending lots of testing, you probably should be sending some other testing also. And that's really important because compared to some of the other things that circulate that cause very common symptoms, there are different treatments for loss of virus, but they're really time sensitive to try to get them on board quickly. So Anish, can you tell us a little bit about some of the options? I know it's not really straightforward with Lhasa and there's some controversy on this. Vanessa, I think you brought up a really good point for us to, when we're seeing patients that are, we're concerned about Lhasa, to also consider other pathogens and infections that may be going on too. I think too often we get laser focused on, on the thing that triggers in our mind and then not thinking about all the other things that could be. And, and that has an important impact for patients. And as you mentioned, with Lhasa, we have had a lot of thought about what the treatments should be. That's because there is no really definitive worked out best treatment for Lhasa. Most classically, we think of an antiviral medicine called ribavirin, which has been studied in Lhasa fever over time. And in many studies have shown that, particularly when given within the first week or first six days of infection, may have an impact in the overall course of loss of fever. It may actually be able to reduce mortality. And there have been some meta-analyses that have shown, in particular in patients that have already some liver dysfunction from loss of fever, that ribavirin may be helpful. But the data is not completely clear, to be honest. And there have been other studies that have not shown a clear impact of ribavirin, particularly in patients that don't have any liver dysfunction. Or there was a case series from Sierra Leone that looked at pediatric patients, and it didn't really seem to find a, a benefit there in the pediatric patients of giving ribavirin. And ribavirin is something that has some side effects, and so it needs to be monitored and really need to be thoughtful when we use it. There is a medication also called favipiravir, which is a antiviral medicine that was developed for influenza and primarily developed in Japan, but now is available a little more widely. There were some animal models that showed that favipiravir could reduce viral loads and therefore potentially impact the course of loss of fever, though that hasn't been studied in humans to date. As you know, Vanessa, the patient that we uh, worked on together uh, here at Emory uh, with loss of fever, we decided to use an experimental combination of favipiravir plus intravenous ripavirin, and that was based off of animal models. And our patient did well with the therapies and did well overall with loss of fever, though I can say I have no idea whether that combination or any one of those particular medicines had an impact in his overall health because we didn't have a study to control other parameters with. So I don't know for sure that helped or not. We also have thought a lot about other disease processes, convalescent plasma. And this is really appealing to take blood or plasma from people who have survived uh, a particular infection like Lhasa and use that to help future patients. I think there have been some promising data, but overall we haven't seen a clear indication that convalescent plasma has helped. And I think the thing that I'm most excited about, and I don't know how you guys feel, Jared and Vanessa, but there, there's been so much advancement in the field of developing monoclonal antibodies for particular pathogens. And there are several groups working on monoclonals for loss of fever. 
And some of the data has really matured over the past couple of years. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing human studies uh, with these new monoclonals. I think overall, just given that we don't have a clear medication or set of medications that will impact our patients with loss of fever, it just underscores the need for us to do really good science in developing these medications and then really good clinical trials to establish what the best treatment is for future patients. I think finally, one of the areas that is really appealing for us to look into further is that of vaccines. And so let me throw a question back at you, Vanessa. As a vaccinologist, where do you think we stand with vaccines for Lassa fever? Where will we go in the future? Thanks, Anish. I, I agree with you completely. I'm really excited about this monoclonal antibody development, first of all, especially for people who are pregnant because they are more likely to have severe disease. But we avoid giving ribavirin and favipiravir to pregnant women because they are dangerous to the unborn fetus. And so far, the data from non-human primates has shown 100% protection with the monoclonals to date. So really excited about that. But I think we're also going to be seeing a lot of improvements in terms of vaccines and vaccine availability. The challenges with loss of vaccine development, again, are that there are all these different strains. They've got different genetic diversities. Sometimes that can be a barrier. But also for a disease that mostly affects West Africa, you don't have a great commercial market for this. And so that's kind of slowed down development. But it's now getting a lot more international attention. And there are a lot of vaccines that have gone through different stages of animal studies, including ones in non-human primates. We actually have a few that recently completed phase one trials in humans. So those initial studies that are looking more at safety and a little bit at immunogenicity and another one or two vaccines that are about to go into phase one clinical trials. And some of those so far in the non-human primates have had 100% protection. So I think it's really promising and they're underway. So we'll see a lot more of this in the future. Thankfully, we have not had these large scale Lassa outbreaks like we did with Ebola. So that has not put a lot of pressure on moving these forward. But at the same time, for everybody who works in that area, because you're a healthcare worker, you are seeing people who are coming in with types of symptoms that could be loss of fever all the time. Having that extra layer of protection is going to be really important. And so I think we're going to get there over the next few years, but we're seeing a lot of progress so far. Since we mentioned vaccines and things to help stop the spread of loss of fever to others, I'm going to throw this out to, to either of you. What can we do with what we have so far to help keep people safe so that somebody doesn't get loss of fever if they're taking care of a patient or as that patient does not go on to spread it to other people. Yeah, Vanessa, I'll be happy to jump in here and, and see if I can add a little bit. One of the things that we think about in managing our teams is protecting our healthcare workers. As we all know that there have been cases of transmission of loss of fever from very sick individuals to the people caring for them. And so we want to reduce that as much as possible. Fortunately, the rate of sort of healthcare transmissions in countries that don't have endemic LASA tends to be low, but it can be impactful when it happens. And so some of the suggestions that we as NETEC have put out there is that when possible, patients that have confirmed LASA fever could be optimally managed in a biocontainment team in unit or under the care of trained infectious disease personnel. And we also additionally suggest that patients be in a single room, if possible, with a private bathroom so that we contain any transmission of pathogens in the broader environment. 
We also advocate for the use of negative pressure or airborne isolation rooms, just in case there are any procedures that may be aerosolized generating, that we don't spread these aerosol particles. One of the things that we see with Lhasa and other types of severe viral infections is the production of a lot of bodily fluids and, and particularly of stool. And so just making sure that there are appropriate management techniques in place to contain these bodily fluids, decontaminate them and dispose of them in a safe manner. And then finally, what people really focus on, but again, is only important once all these other things have been done, is the appropriate protective equipment for those personnel. And so we would advocate that healthcare providers taking care of patients with suspected or loss of fever at least have uh, what we call contact precautions as well as droplet precautions to protect their skin and mucous membranes from contact with potential bodily fluids that may contain the virus. There's a lot of really great information out there on how to implement this in your environment. And again, I would say that NITEC has a lot of online materials for this, as well as the ability to come help teams locally set up these protocols so that they can safely care for patients with Lhasa or similar types of. I think it's also important to mention that because it is a neglected disease, we don't know a lot about it. And so reaching out to people like Jared or virologists or researchers in that area, when you have a case, once you have all these things in place where you can do it safely, is really something that can help advance that field. And and Jared, I don't know if you want to mention any of the things that are still kind of these wide open questions with loss of virus, some good areas that we can learn from from our patients. That's a really great point. And I was going to jump in, so I'm glad you, you brought it up. There's still not a lot known on how this virus moves through the body, how it replicates so efficiently in these different cell types inside the body. And that's very different than, you know, doing work in a cell culture system or modified system. And so understanding how an individual who presents with something compares to another person, you can look at different levels of virus. You can look at how the virus replicates in the individual. You can look at how much virus is shedding over periods of time, what bodily fluids contain the virus and understanding does the virus change as it goes from person to person? Is there minor evolution going on within a person as it tries to stay away from your immune system, trying to, tries to evade any kind of elimination? And are these things that are common or are they kind of anecdotal? So that's a really good understanding of what their introduction was all the way through uh, resolution and what happens when you treat an individual. So does a person resolve their infection with a monoclonal antibody treatment, but it just makes it shorter. It's not less worse. And what that does to the virus, does that put a pressure on the virus that enables it to uh, change and, and evolve? So those are really open-ended questions of, can this virus withstand treatment from these different drugs? What does it look like when there's a, a vaccination and other things like that to enable understanding at the molecular level? Thanks. I think those are really important points. And I'm just going to throw this out there because I know we've talked about it a lot. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know about loss of virus or loss of fever? So Vanessa, let me jump in and a message that I like to give is in order to find Lhasa, we need to think about Lhasa. And in order to think about Lhasa, we have to ask the right questions from the beginning. And so one of the things I really encourage clinicians and healthcare workers to do is whenever someone's presenting with a potential infection, ask questions and particularly where they have traveled to, who they've traveled with and what they were doing when they're traveling as well as other types of exposures that they might have had in the recent time. 
And that really helps us think about what infections they may have come in contact with and really then go into what we like to call at NITEC is identify, isolate, and inform. So once you've thought about what uh, germ they have, you will think about how you need to isolate them and who you need to call. But if you don't ask the right questions to start with, we can't get to that point of appropriately informing the right people to help the patient. Yeah, that's a great point. And a traveler who's gone to West Africa and is staying in five-star hotels versus somebody who is going and staying with their family in a local village have very different risk factors. And so you might approach those very differently as you're thinking about loss versus other types of infections. To add to what Anish just said about other things that clinicians and, and researchers might want to keep in mind is that to reinforce what you had said earlier, Vanessa, that there are a large number of different vaccines and vaccines in clinical trials that might not be necessarily available commercially, but might be able to be employed in an EIND or research study. And there are also different types of drugs that exist uh, that people are treating. We've talked about Rivarin and Favipiravir, but you know there might be other options that you, you might be able to look into, particularly if it's a small number of, of cases. So there are other things that clinicians might want to keep in mind, and we've outlined some of those in the manuscript that we published. I think that's a great point. We have a nice table that says who's making all the different vaccines that are in development, all the different types of treatments. And having talked with some of these organizations, I know some of them are willing to make things available if needed. So if you have a potential exposure and you're looking for vaccine or you have a case and you're looking for different types of treatments, it's a great resource to be able to figure out who are you going to call to see what is available and what all your options are so that you can try to pick the best ones available for your patient's situation. Thank you, Anish and Jared, for joining us today to discuss loss of virus infections. You can find the manuscript that we're referring to on the International Journal of Infectious Diseases website. It is freely available without charge, so you should be able to find that wherever you are. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this episode on loss of virus infections. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot O-R-G slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.